Drexel University infuses academics with the power of real experience. Through Drexel's renowned cooperative education program, students are empowered to test drive future careers and discover the perfect profession before graduation. By embracing experiential education, this Philadelphia institution has created a practical yet transformative academic model that inspires intellectual exploration and yields undeniable results. More at drexel.edu. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. Earlier this month, my guest, Maria Ressa, who, by the way, is also a friend, was on a Zoom when her phone rang. Hello? Am I talking to Maria Ressa? You are, yes. And I'm calling you on behalf of the Norwegian Nobel Committee. Maria was just awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, which she shared with Russian journalist Dmitry Muratov. In announcing the prize to Ressa, the committee said she, quote, uses freedom of expression to expose abuse of power, use of violence, and growing authoritarianism in her native country, the Philippines. I'm glad the Nobel Committee has caught up because I've been touting Maria's work for years. Yes, for her coverage of President Rodrigo Duterte's brutal regime, but also for her very early reporting on social media misinformation and the spread of Facebook-fueled lies in her region. These days, she's been doing most of this via Rappler, a new site she co-founded almost a decade ago. During that time, online abuse, government persecution, and death threats have gotten in her way. But that hasn't stopped her from reporting the truth in one of the most dangerous countries in the world to be a journalist. So I wanted to talk to Maria about what message the Nobel Committee may have been trying to send by giving journalists the award and what the world can learn from her experience. Maria Ressa, welcome to Sway. So what is your reaction to winning? Yeah, uh, still stunned, you know, and, and I am just, I'm, Kara, look, when they called, I said I was speechless, but ironically, kept I just kept saying speechless. I still don't know, because all of a sudden, there was this flurry of activity, and I thought I was busy before, and now I just have no idea of busy, right? The Nobel Committee gave us a spotlight, and I wanted to shine the spotlight on Venezuela. The editors in Venezuela were having a hard time. The ones in India, in Indonesia. And yet, I'm also still trying to do my work. We're building a tech platform. You know, I run Rappler. So, so yeah, it's crazy. So did you expect to win something like this? You've won awards. You've won Time, Person of the Year, and all kinds of things, and uh, all deserved. Was this something that surprised you? Oh my God, of course it surprised me. And I no, I didn't. Um, I think the first inkling we had of it was a few days before CNN uh, had asked. And I just thought it was one of those lists, right? They had a list of the people. And so they just wanted to get a, a number. So I was, guys, don't worry, it's a long shot. And my desk was thinking, should we prepare? The announcement came on the last day of the filing of the candidacies for our May 2022 election. So we were running around like crazy already. And then the trigger that made some of our desk people really plan was when a senior Norwegian journalist just kept asking for my cell phone. But still, I was shocked. Right. 
Right. So um, out of 13 people who won the Nobel Prize this year, you're the only woman. And since the Nobel Prizes are given out in 1901, only 58 women have won. That's out of nearly 1,000 winners. But the head of the Swedish Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences, which awards some Nobel Prizes, said the committee will not implement quotas for gender or ethnicity, despite pressure to do so. Can you talk a little bit about this? What does that mean? It's a great thing to win, but being the only. You know, I'm divided on this. I guess when I first migrated to the U.S., I was the only brown kid in my class in Toms River, New Jersey, from the Philippines. I was about 10 years old. And when I was applying to Princeton, I actually thought twice about whether I tick off the minority, right? Because you don't want to be admitted because you're a minority. You want to be admitted because you deserve to be admitted. And then, of course, there's another part that says, well, if I get in, does it matter? And I guess in a weird way, this isn't what it should be. But I will say that the technology that now unites the world has forced women many steps back. And this I know from the Philippines. The reality is the culture follows leadership. Right. And our leadership, both in your country and mine, have taken many, many steps back with the kind of misogynistic, sexist stuff that is encouraged, that is given incentive on social media platforms. So, you know, I always pegged it to that, like the technology has actually pushed us back, I think, decades because these strongmen leaders, these populist leaders have given permission to people who would have been ashamed to say these things in person. Then they can do it online. And they can, and they do, and it changes behavior. Within and, your country, in the United States, and elsewhere. Um, yes. One of the, uh, the other thing is that you're the first working journalist to win this Nobel Prize since 1935. What do you think that message says? Journalists don't deserve the Nobel Prize or what? I'm teasing you. Well, you know, this, I when I looked at that, because of course, like I did that the day after, because this prize gave journalists, we, we got a surge of energy from it. But here's the danger. I looked at that and I was like, oh my God, the last time a journalist received this prize, he languished in a Nazi concentration camp and he died because of the torture he had gone through from there. So I was telling our core managers, I was like, guys, you know, let's still continue to be cautious and prepared. So essentially the Nobel Committee kind of shone the light and told us that this moment is exactly like that moment. It feels like an atom bomb exploded in our information ecosystem. And we need to do exactly what happened post-World War II in order to deal with it, to solve this. This is absolutely something you talked about for a very long time. Do you think it's a particularly dangerous time to be reporting? Um, do you think it's gotten worse? Yeah, absolutely. And the tech platforms are part of that, right? In fact, they were the first part of making it significantly worse. We're used to speaking truth to power. We're used to power coming at you and challenging you. What we didn't have before is kind of the blatant, you know, your fake news. And when when former President Trump did that to American journalists, a week later, President Duterte did that to Rappler. And I think that kind of attack is enabled by technology by social media, you know, because you see this in every country around the world, these kinds of bottom-up astroturfing attacks. Uh, when you say a lie 10 times, truth has a chance of catching up. When you say a lie a million times on social media with the algorithmic distribution and the choices that these platforms make to actually prioritize the spread of the lies laced with anger and hate, 
over the facts, you don't have a chance. Because in 2016, when I was getting deluged with attacks, at that point, I was telling them, look, here are these attacks. They're wrong. They're libelous. If this was, you know, said to me in person, it's slanderous. And they were like, well, Maria, you're a public figure. And I think it's like a naive and a wrong interpretation of what that is, because I'm not a politician. I'm a journalist. And under my constitution, which is patterned after the United States, we have the Bill of Rights, you know, which gives protections to journalists. In the Philippines, right. In the Philippines, just like in the United States. But what the platforms did, because they didn't understand the whole complex process of checks and balances and how tough it is to be a journalist, they stripped away that protection. There's no way to actively respond to it except to do what I was doing, which is to ask for enlightened self-interest from these social media platforms. And, you know, they finally, they announced this policy on putting back protections around journalists. How many years did it take before we got it back? Did you see either the U.S., or Philippines heading to where they've gone, a Trump Duterte uh, coming to power? Absolutely not. You know, what we saw from 1986, which is when people power happened. And people power was really a spark for a global movement for democracy that we were all absolutely certain that democracy was forever. And then I think now it's in 2016, during the elections, someone actually asked me, you know, a martial law. Can you can can you actually can we go back to those dark times? And I said no. And the reason I gave is social media. That's how foolish I was. You I thought it would could be not a, have imagined. You thought it would be a democratic yeah. leaning thing. So you met Duterte very early in the 1980s. I think you had a seminal interview with him in 2015, shortly before he announced he was running for president. Ironically, similar timing to when Trump was running. Um, that interview with Duterte was rather eye opening. Here's a clip. So no qualms about killing killers. Yes, of course. I I I I must admit that I have killed. They they three months uh, early on. I, I I killed about three people. Wow! Here's a presidential candidate telling you he's killed people. About three of them. What were you thinking when he told you that? I was shocked because I you know what do I do? Like do I dive in on it? Do I push him on it. You know, at that point, he was a dark horse candidate. And like he is doing today, he was playing about even announcing whether he was going to be a candidate. I learned a lot in the last six years about how journalists, how we get pulled into these meaningless, you know, watching things happen when in the end, it's a tactic of misdirection. Um, I, I didn't really know how to handle Duterte. All I did was kept my face kind of calm, and then I just followed up. And I think about that moment all the time. Should I have made more of it? In the end, I wrote a piece about the contradictions of Duterte, that he admits to violating the law, but he will be in charge of implementing the law. It's something I followed up later on. And in, in the last interview I did with him, to me, he, he admitted that you know, he likes using violence and fear. He wanted to scare people into submission, but he also explained this to me. Like he basically said, you don't understand the Filipino psyche, Maria. You know, he, and, and who who am I to say, this man's been in power in Davao City since 1988 and he's president of our nation, right? So he basically told me that Filipinos are just so 
uh, unruly that you have to make them afraid, which he's carried out. So your response is, I think I'll create a website devoted to investigating his corruption. Well, Rappler was created because we wanted to do more than just journalism, but with the standards and ethics of journalism. So it really was a way to try to imagine what would technology and journalism look like if we wanted to use the social media platforms to build communities of action. Because one of the, there are two data points I had then. One was people um, listen to their family and friends over news groups. And if you think about it now, Facebook decided in 2018, they pivoted to family and friends because they were already trying to manage the impact of news. And they were realizing that this is far more complex than they had ever realized. But here's the thing. When you take news, facts, and you just amplify family and friends, and you're already being insidiously manipulated by power, you just made disinformation far more powerful by de-emphasizing the facts. So do you think Duterte and Trump grokked that connection? I, I think they did. They understood that connection of reaching out to people directly and then getting them to share it. Yeah, absolutely. So what happened is that the algorithms of the social media platforms, because it's not just Facebook, but these algorithms were exploited and helped the rise of these populist authoritarians using us against them styles of leadership. Because what spreads fastest is anger and hate. How do you do that? You attack the other side. You foment fear in one side. It is the worst of human nature. You know, good leaders try to unite, but these types of leaders divide. And then on these American platforms, that's the other irony of it. America, which is supposed to be a beacon of democracy, on these American platforms, the power of that kind of rhetoric and leadership is amplified at least times four. Yeah, you would call that weaponizing the internet. And you've previously said, quote, where the Philippines goes, America follows. Take the weaponization of social media. We were a test case for America. You predicted pretty much everything that would happen. Yeah, uh, and I'm sad that it happened. And when January 6th happened in the United States, you know, it was, we saw, you saw it. We all saw it coming. Little Rappler and me in the Philippines, you know, it all flowed downhill. But we weren't the first. The Ukraine is the first in 2014. And I think the hard part is to even see the rhetoric now, you know, the way the debate has been framed. It took so long to move people away from content moderation because it's not about the content. You know, we get lost in this free speech issue. It isn't a free speech issue, right? It's a distribution issue. Um, Sacha Baron Cohen said, it's not a freedom of speech, it's a freedom of reach. So, January 6th. That was the end of a year-long process. And that year-long process began in 2019 on RT. And then it was picked up by, by Steve Bannon, seated on closed pages, then picked up and mainstreamed by Tucker Carlson, then picked up by QAnon, right? So you have this bottom-up, QAnon comes as a super spreader, and then President Trump comes on top of that. And the thing is that people still think about it as, you know, it's just the content, it's just saying it, but they don't look at it as a behavior modification system, which it is. Propaganda, really. It's called, yeah. I think Renee Duresta just called it ampliganda, which is amplified propaganda. I call it, pro I'm not using the word misinformation anymore. I'm just going to say propaganda. 
Yes, but propaganda doesn't even have the whole thing of behavior modification. This is about human behaviors. So the quote I like best is E.O. Wilson, where he says, our greatest crisis is our paleolithic emotions, our medieval institutions, and our godlike technology. This is changing our behavior. And here's the last part. We know from studying the way terrorism spreads is that, you know, we all started first with looking at the hijackers. And then we realized that, that individuals behave differently in groups. And then you move to like emergent behavior, which is human beings at scale behave differently. Emergent behavior is like, think of like the flock of birds where an individual bird may not know exactly where they go, but a wing tips and then the group behaves. So we there is pressure of the group on individuals to behave in ways that individuals would not normally behave. And that's the biggest danger of the social media platforms is that by putting us at scale, unprecedented, never before happened, and then using algorithmic principles to manipulate us, like they choose what spreads through it. And what they're doing is technically amplifying the worst of human nature. Right. All right. Let's talk about Facebook as a weapon. About 70 million Facebook users in the Philippines out of a population just north of 100 million. It's a huge megaphone. Um, What are the main strands of misinformation and disinformation that Facebook helps spread in the region? All the meta narratives that you have, right? Like uh, Duterte is the best leader in the world. The Pope said Duterte is, and then all the congratulations. I think the first step was to take out the DDS used to be the Davao Death Squad. And within a few weeks of him taking office, DDS began to stand for Duterte diehard supporters. How you can watch in plain view while words that were negative were turned positive. So it started by spinning the narrative, you know, propaganda, but propaganda on steroids. And then after that, they went after potential critics. And the first were me, um, but Lila DeLima, you know, who's a senator now, who's serving her fifth year in prison. It's almost like that was the fertilizer before the government took actions. It's always bottom up on social media and then top down. The weaponization of the law was always preceded by the weaponization of social media. And Facebook was that. And I think the other part is now that as we walk into our May elections, this is the greatest danger. We will not have integrity of elections if we don't have integrity of facts. And that's why I continue to appeal to these American companies to put guardrails, voluntarily do it, turn up the dial on news, which we now know is possible. They did it. And then they realized, oh, no, there's less engagement, meaning we make less money. So let me turn it back down and let the lies proliferate, right? So you personally Um, warned Mark Zuckerberg about the dangers of Facebook in the Philippines, and you asked him to come see what was happening for himself. Can you talk about that encounter? Yeah, this was in April of 2017 on the sidelines of the F8 conference that they have. You know, before then, I had already spoken to at least 50 different officers and people working inside Facebook because by August 2017, we were under full attack. 2016 to 2018 was when we watched our information ecosystem get torn down and our world turned upside down. I came under attack. Ultim- I mean, come on, Kara. 10 arrest warrants in less than two years. I, you know, it's like, I don't even know how to react to it. So you see him at F8. I see him at F8. And, you know, his smart struck me. He's very smart. He could understand all the different technologies that we were bringing up. But I think what made it different was I, 
I wanted him to understand how he was determining what was happening to the Philippines and what was happening to me, right? I explained how powerful Facebook was, and I said 97% of Filipinos on the internet are on Facebook. And then he asked me a question. He was very quizzical. Uh, He just said, wait, wait, what are the other 3% doing? And, you know, we laughed. The table laughed because it was I guess it wasn't that it was cute. It just didn't dawn on me what it was showing because the halo of Facebook was still there. I was working very constructively behind the scenes and continue to be a partner, even though I continue to demand better because I felt that that's the only option. You must publicly demand better because we are at risk. And then I just talked a little bit more about what was happening. And I asked for help. I always ask for help because this is not within our control. That's the thing. Right. Oh, I also spoke to Sheryl Sandberg at that time. Right. And, and, uh, she so listened. What did they say to you? We'll listen. We're listening. We hear you. What was, the, what was the react? What, what did they say to you to assuage your worries? Uh, Cheryl asked me to contact her, you know, and, and then I never heard back. And, you know, just trying to stay alive as a digital organization under attack, uh, and as a person, can you can you give people a sense of what the attacks were like? It's horrific. Um, I felt this, and we could see because you know we monitor. Uh, I think that's the other thing that Rappler had. We had a research team. Here's what they found in studying almost half a million social media attacks against me from 2016. So 60% of the attacks are meant to tear down my credibility, and then the other 40% are meant to tear down my spirit. That includes death threats. That includes trying to find any weakness. You know, I have a mole on my nose. I have eczema. I have dry skin, atopic dermatitis. So, you know, one of the memes that they spread is actually was a weakness, was a vulnerability. But then when they spread it, they actually made it a strength for me. You know, I don't mind telling you now I have atopic dermatitis, but you know, what they did is they dehumanized me by constantly using me as a meme. I've been called every animal you can think of. The worst part is their nickname for me, which they even did code words for, which is uh, scrotum face, right? So they took my head and then spliced it onto uh, human genitals. And this would be like months where I would wake up and the comments of their echo chambers would be filled with this horrific image. And um, and it, it takes a while to recover, but you know, I recovered and I realized that part of every recovery from this is sharing it with people, right? That's when I know that I'm, that I've, that the sting is gone. And here's the part that it, our data showed us Our data showed us that women were attacked at least 10 times more than men. So this connects to that question of changing the culture, right? So if women are attacked 10 times more than men, you know, what's the end goal of these attacks? There are two. The first is to pound the target to silence. The second is to create a bandwagon effect, manufactured reality, to make anyone else who's not aware of it think that this is actually true, right? So when you talk to Mark and Cheryl, what and they did nothing, right? They didn't call you back. There's nothing that yeah. happened. Yeah. Was there any follow-up whatsoever? I tried to do, you know, I always say you have to draw lines. So I tried very hard to draw lines between our operations because Rappler is, you know, we were 
one of their alpha partners, essentially, in the Philippines. And so I really wanted to help them because I think at the beginning, they didn't really know. And then, you know, I was very quiet and trying to work with them to show them what was happening here. And we still work with them. Do you think that was a good decision? Because my, my methodology was to hit them over the head as many times as possible till it got through to them. But I'm not in the situation you're in. So part of it is I've run an entire, I've run this news group. And I guess part of it is the fast growth. And I can even show this in terms of numbers. Our steep trajectory when we first grew from, from 2012 to 2016 was because of Facebook. These platforms determine whether news organizations live or die. And we actually saw that, right? So I think at the beginning, I was trying to understand them as a power source because they were also new. But then over time, it was, you know, you knew that it was getting all the way up and that when everything is centralized the way it is in Mark Zuckerberg, then somehow the organization needs to find ways to mitigate his weaknesses. Do you think your Nobel Prize will be a wake-up call for people like Mark Zuckerberg to listen to you? I think it should be. Or the Facebook whistleblower, Francis Haugen, testimony before Senate, will that be a wake-up call for them? Do you think that's the case? I think it was a bad week, the, the week of the Nobel Prize, because what Francis Haugen did was kind of the tipping point in terms of, well, first politics, right? The bipartisan, both Democrats and Republicans finally coming together. But I thought it was great that they came together on Facebook's own reports about the impact on teenagers. But I thought it was really, you know, bad that they didn't extend that to what that means for the people on the front lines, you know, for the human rights defenders, for journalists, that what this means is that insidious manipulation. You know, it's not because the teenagers are weak mentally. It's that the weaknesses of human beings' biologies are being exploited by by these platforms. Right. So, so again, do you think it's a wake-up call for them? I, I don't. I think they've moved into defense mode very significantly. I got to remain optimistic. I think you're probably right because of the money involved. And that's something that also took me a few years because I, I believed, and maybe, you know, I know it, I wrongly believed that like news organizations, they would take the responsibility of the public sphere seriously. They certainly hired a lot of journalists at a certain point. Yeah. I do think they exploded an atom bomb in the information ecosystem, and it cannot happen again. And it keeps happening again every day, right? So I hope they listen. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Bellingcat founder Elliot Higgins, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Maria Ressa after the break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. 
we've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are hand-picked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. You were on Fareed Zakaria's show the other night, and I noticed you had your lawyer, Amal uh, Clooney, with you, which seems, I guess, necessary given the legal scrutiny, I would say even persecution you're facing from government lawsuits. Can you explain the lawsuits you're facing? And let me read from The Atlantic. A judge convicted the Philippine journalist Maria Ressa for an article she did not write, edit, or supervise of a crime that hadn't even existed when the story was published. Feels very Kafka-esque, as we like to say. Well, some good news first. Two of the nine cases were dropped. So we have Rappler and I, we have seven remaining cases. It started with 10. So, you know, over time, slowly they're going away because they're as ridiculous as the cyber libel case, which I was convicted for, along with a former colleague. And here's the irony. I was convicted for cyber libel, but Rappler was not. Right. So where did I do the cyber libel? But, you know, I shouldn't say that too loudly because they may reopen and say, by the way, we convict Rappler as well. I mean, that's how crazy it is. You know, I am. uh, It's like the queen of cards saying off with her head. Um, Anyway, (laughs) so the the cyber libel cases, there were three of them filed against me. They're criminal cases in the Philippines. Right. So I had arrest warrants. One the most recent cyber libel, the arrest warrant was in January this year. During COVID. during COVID. And because an arrest warrant was issued, I had to be out of my house during a lockdown. So I had to leave my house so that I would not be arrested in the middle of the night. These are the kinds of things that you don't talk about. This is the kind of death by a thousand cuts that the government can do with these. And you don't see it. It's just, oh, another arrest warrant for Maria. So people then go to the link, well, she's arrested so many times, she must be guilty rather than persecuted. Correct. Correct. Right. And that's exactly the propaganda that's out. Do you think this Nobel Prize will help protect you? What's been the reaction? Obviously, your friends and other journalists are thrilled. But what's been the reaction in the Philippines? The people who were silent weren't silent anymore. That's one. I think that the biggest message for us is that you are not alone. And that's not just to me. That is to every journalist in the Philippines, the defenders of press freedom and human rights. Because, you know, for me, I have this threat, but I'm really lucky compared to the others. We've had at least 19 journalists killed under the Duterte administration. That's according to RSF and our National Union of Journalists of the Philippines. They say at least 20. We've also had, there's a a journalist who's been languishing in prison. Her name is Frenchie May Cumpio. She was jailed uh, two Februarys ago, right? So she's still in jail. What was she in jail for? Um, very similar trumped up charges again. So will this protect you, the Nobel Prize? I was, I'm hoping it does, but I'm not sure. Will things get better in the Philippines? I hope so. Well, one of the things I've learned is that in, in this time is that you don't stay quiet. The only defense a journalist can have is to shine the light. And the Nobel Committee just gave 
us a huge, I joke that Amal has Kleeglites, but this is even bigger than Kleeglites, you know? It's, so it's like, I hope that's what we'll do. And, and one of the things I am trying to figure out is, so where do we shine the light, you know? So Venezuela, because they're even ranking worse than the Philippines in the World Press Freedom Index. India, you know, is very close. So I hope that that's one. But here in the Philippines, there's so much to do. But I hope you, I think it's good. Last month, the International Criminal Court authorized a probe looking into whether the Duterte regime committed crimes against humanity and its war on drugs. And there's an election next May. Does that give you hope? Or is this just going to, everyone's go, this is a great playbook. Let's use it again and again. I think it's hope, but I think it's an existential moment for democracy in the Philippines. So journalists are a little bit stronger. Part of the reason Rappler can speak the way we do and continue doing the investigative reporting is that we're not owned by any tycoon with other business interests because that's the way they attack. So do you think, what what is his impact? Because he's not running, correct? Duterte is not running. Um, we don't know whether he's running or not until after the period of substitution. Oh, so it's like a Trump thing. Which is November 15th. And this is another one of the kind of legal acrobatics that President Duterte has brought from Davao City to the capital. His family has had a hold on Davao since 1988 because they exploit these legal loopholes, which is, you know, kind of like a shock and awe campaign. Like, it's like the tactics of power have overshadowed the principles that should govern power. And that's been that way for a long time. So so you don't know. You don't know whether it's the case. So, oh, yeah, we don't know. But I will say one thing again, and this is part of the reason I always bring it back to the platforms. Our elections will be will be critical. It's existential. Will we retain rule of law? Will our democracy have a chance to recover from the six years of the Duterte administration? A lot of that will determine on whether we have integrity of elections. And we can't have integrity of elections if we don't have integrity of facts. So it goes back to those platforms. And now we're going to have to add on top of Facebook is YouTube. On top of that, YouTube is now number one in the Philippines. And then TikTok, right? So it's the way our minds are being manipulated are expanding. <laughs> At least there's dancing on TikTok. But let me just yeah. ask you when you, it sounds like something that's happening, I don't know, in the United States of America around election interference, the idea of fraud. Any predictions over here in the U.S. in 2024? We have a presidential election coming up too. Trump is rumored to run. There's obviously midterm elections, very significant yeah. ones. What is your warning uh, for us here, given what's happened there? You're not out of the woods. Yes, President Biden won, but that was because you had, you know, Facebook's break glass. You had all the social media platforms on alert, but nothing has fundamentally changed. The systems that brought you to January 6 uh, are still there and are getting stronger. And that is worrisome to me. Americans, the psyche, the zeitgeist is being changed in front of our eyes, our emergent behavior. And it's not just you, it's globally. Humanity's emergent behavior is to the worst of humanity. It is not going to support democracy. And I think that's why the Nobel Committee gave the prize to journalists now. This is as existential moment as right before World War II, right? So you said that sometimes you feel like a Cassandra doomed to make true predictions that fall on deaf ears. What's your prediction for what the future looks like globally in the war for truth? I think it's the same signal that the Nobel Committee just sent out, which is that we are on the brink of the rise of fascism. 
Duterte was elected democratically. Bolsonaro was elected democratically. You know, we're seeing Orban. I mean, these are all rising. And I think, you know, what we don't want to reach is the tipping point of fascism or the loss of democracy. But I think beyond that, think about it like this, right? If social media is a behavior modification system, the very platforms that deliver the news to you are biased against news. If you think about it like that, and then it is changing human behavior, um, what kind of world are we on the precipice of creating? Without the facts, then how do we solve coronavirus? How do we solve climate change? This is it. Like on every front, you know, the, the systems of governance, the loss of democracy, the rise of fascism, that's only the beginning. And I think what the Nobel Committee, in fact, Barrett Rice Anderson said it. She said that she believes democracy are necessary for peace. So if you don't have democracies and you don't have peace and you don't have a shared reality, which is what the social media algorithmic amplification is doing. It is tearing apart our shared reality. If you don't have that, how do you solve the existential problems humanity is facing? Yeah. So let me ask you a final question. Your personal life, how has it affected your family, your loved ones, and yourself? I haven't in so many ways. You know, my my parents are are getting older. They've gotten much weaker. I've watched their, I've watched them. In they should be in the Philippines. I'm, you know, they had just decided to move to the Philippines when Rappler came under attack. They moved everything here. They sold their house in Florida. They came here, and then I came under attack. And my mother was threatening to go to the airport when you know an arrest warrant was there, and I, I had to ask Rappler to please keep my mother home. My sister was her her minder, you know, because my mom is. When I was with CNN and I was inside a war zone, my mom would bombard our international desk so much that <laughs> she every time she called me, it would kick off the satellite phone and I would get kicked off air. So CNN actually assigned her a minder when I was in a conflict <laughs> zone. That's how my mother is like, a, she can bust through anything. So when, when all the arrests happened, I asked my parents to go back to Florida, to go back home to the U.S., and um, and we haven't seen them since the lockdown began, and they're alone. So this is, it's massive impact. One of the, so the government has also prevented my travel four times since, since uh, August last year, and one of the times was when my mom was diagnosed with cancer and had to get an operation, and I wanted to be there for it. And all of the courts, you know, all of the courts had given permission except one. And that one court, the Court of Appeals, waited until 5 p.m. the day before I was supposed to leave at 6 a.m. the next morning. I'm getting upset, you know, to tell me no. And, you know, the impact on my parents. Oh, Maria, I'm so sorry. What can we do to help you in that regard? I think you're doing... What do you need? I don't really know, you know. It's a legal battle. I will fight it. And I actually am very lucky to have the legal support I have. Mm-hmm. This should not but be. But thank you for asking. <laughs> Anything you need. <laughs> I'm serious. I'll go to Florida. I hate Florida. 
I'll drag my That's 17 the other thing children you- and my pre- I will drag my 17 <laughs> children and my pregnant wife to Florida to help your parents. No, you, you don't want to do that, right? Like so we have like these weekly zooms with my parents, but yeah, it's hard to do all the things on Zoom. Yeah. Maria, the world does not deserve you and you deserve the Nobel Peace Prize. Sorry, I didn't realize. Yeah, I don't talk about this. I'm so sorry. Whew. Okay, I'm ready. I'm okay. <laughs> you, don't have to, you do not have to be okay. What's happened to you is appalling. And if Facebook does not hear this, they need to. Because it's really what's happened to you is, is a crime. I think we will win this. You know, I still have faith. I guess that's the help. And you've been so incredibly helpful because I think you also sounded the alarm. I think that's the other part. I also thought it was interesting that it took Carol Cadwallader to break Cambridge Analytica. You know, she's an independent journalist. So I think our whole, our whole, the way we see the world and the way we see technology's role in it has to change. And I think that's what Frances Haugen um, what the latest whistleblower actually accomplished. Interesting. A lot of women. Right? A lot of women, right? Well, yeah. And in the Philippines, we had our first Olympic gold medal. She's a woman. And then this, this is our first Nobel. It still hasn't sunk in, so I am waiting. <laughs> you should wear it around your house. All, you should wear it all around Manila. That's, you should wear it around your neck and say, hello, what's this? It's my Nobel Peace Prize, you know? <laughs> Um, Maria, thank you so much. And I want you to take care of yourself. I I worry for you a lot, but you are also an icon that we all need to look up to. It's going to get better. And thank you. Thank you. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blake Nishik, Matt Kwong, Daphne Chen, and Caitlin O'Keefe. Edited by Naima Raza. With original music by Isaac Jones, engineering by Sonia Herrero, and mixing by Carol Sabaro, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lin, and Mahima Chablani. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts. So follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, along with a satellite phone to call Maria's mother, Download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.